Welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we're just trying to make the world 10% nicer. Check us out at Super Nice Club on Instagram, Facebook, our website, superniceclub.com, where you can learn all about us and grab some cool gear that is guaranteed to start conversations about making the world nicer or your money back. Yep. In fact, if you want to save 10% right now and join the Super Nice Club Insiders, where you'll get invites to play games, win stuff, and invitations to meet other Super Nice Club members, you know, post-COVID, text ICON, I-C-O-N, right now to 310-421-0393. 310-421-0393, text ICON. It's worth it. Trust me. This week's guest is a man I was lucky enough to work with on a project mm, about almost a decade ago, I think. It's uh, Jonathan Ward, co-founder with his wife, Jamie, of custom auto designer and builder, Icon. Uh, go, to, go to icon4x4.com right now so you can just sort of see the level of master craftsmanship that is literally unparalleled. Icon4x4.com. Got it? Type it in. Cool. Whether or not you're a, a quote-unquote car person doesn't matter. What's so special about what Jonathan and Jamie are doing is their attention to craft, the, the artistry in melding so many different disciplines and, and how they work together as a couple. There's definitely an art to that. And Jonathan reveals their secret. Just that alone is worth your time. If you are into cars, this podcast is going to be your new favorite. Trust me. The vehicles that slowly turn out of the Icon Workshop are the rarest of the rare, and there's really nothing else like them on the planet. And you'll learn about that. You'll hear Jonathan talk about the projects. If you're a car geek, you just have to check it out. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to embarrass Jonathan by mentioning his former career as an actor, but uh, well, I mean, now that I'm doing it, I guess I did want to because I'm doing it, so here goes. His credits include <laughs> The Adventures of Bean Baxter. Come on. Did you watch that? I watched that. Charles in Charge, Mac and Me, Who's the Boss, Steel Magnolias, and of course, the crowning jewel in his acting resume, Fern Gully. He got out of acting while he was still young, but it's important to note, it's important to note that he was crushing it in acting, and he decided instead to follow his heart and make a leap of faith into something totally different. It's a classic max out my credit card and believe in myself story. Kind of like the Super Nice Club. And maybe your story one day soon. Who knows? So turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Jonathan Ward. Jonathan Ward, welcome to Nice Work. Really glad you're on today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Todd. Yeah, I've been excited about what you do for years at Icon. Been following it, yet to be able to put a down payment on something, but it's a goal. Well, don't forget, I mean, you played a role in its inception back in the day when we used to advertise and we were getting our brand identity together and everything. Uh, you and uh, Mr. Mammis were uh, really helpful in uh, defining that language. So thank you for that. Of course. Yeah, that's uh, so for what uh, Jonathan's talking about is some years back, a creative partner, John Mammis, who's a wonderful all around creative and creative director. And I did a little bit of writing and design work for what, what was that? Was that DuPont registry? I think. I think so. And I think also you were involved when we were like trying to really define 
like a brand book down we did to a deck. we did uh, yeah, yeah and we we did, we defined our typefaces and our coloration and graphical balances and sort of in fact the, we still try to follow those rules today i mean we stopped advertising about a decade ago but um, typography and color balance and, and a lot of those, we still reference that old manual. Oh, that's, really, that's neat. That's great to hear. So you had a career before you got into your current career. Way back, you were an actor. You did a lot of stuff. Um, of course, I mean, you're most known for what? Fern Gully? No, I'm kidding. No, you, you Hopefully I'm not. I don't <laughs> think I'm known for any of it anymore. No, but come on. Steel Magnolias, Fern Goalie, uh, all these things. You were considered a child actor at one point. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I actually started um, by total random coincidence when I was seven. And I was on Broadway doing Peter Pan. And then that lasted for a year and a half. Never missed a performance. And then I did two other Broadway shows. I did Shakespeare in the Park. I did Off-Broadway, then voiceovers, then commercials, then movies of the week. And it just sort of organically was like a series of unanticipated lily pads uh, from one opportunity to the next. But actually, I, I loved it. And a lot of my friends that I grew up with in that space have different, you know, it's like your, bro your brother or sister remembers aspects of your children. Like, mm -hmm. Who are you and what family did you grow up in? You know, like we, I have, I see that between my wife and her sister, the variances on how they recollect or absorb aspects of their childhood range from phenomenal learning experience to downright nightmares. <laughs> I would say my child actor experience, I beat the odds uh, in that it was a phenomenal experience. I absolutely loved it. And I was never really good at being a kid, so it, it really allowed me an incredible community and an opportunity to be given respect and consideration and opportunity that coming from a tiny town in Maryland as a seven-year-old, no one's going to take me seriously. I couldn't do anything. I sucked at sports, so I get kicked off a little league or whatever. I asked too many questions for my scout leader, so I got kicked out of that, too. <laughs> so it, 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 it was great. I loved it. It was just when I got older, eh. it's funny. The more success I got, mm -hmm. the less I loved it, and the more disenchanted I was with the perception that I had so much creative control to create things, and then... Once it got to the point of starting to become a personal uh, safety and privacy concern, then I, I, I had a stalker that got really bad that kind of brought it all to a head. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I bailed. You had a stalker. I did not know that. Sorry to hear yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, that was good fun. So it sounds like you found a home in the acting world that was comfortable. You didn't have one. That You were kind of an, an awkward uh kid like a lot of us were found yep. a home in acting and then you grew up you grew yep. out of it. it it gave you a platform it, it gave you a, a good childhood and then you decided um i'm good yeah wanted to move on and at that point i'd started dating my wife she was in music management which she really didn't like either and with really no deep thought we were on a vacation together in south africa and like over a bottle of wine, we decided mm, we're young. We don't have kids. We don't have any debt. Like 
let's reinvent ourselves while we still can. And we literally got home and I told my agents I'm out, I'm done and manager in PR and I bailed on everything. My wife quit her job and we quickly turned my long-term already at that point hobby of tinkering with vintage vehicles mm -hmm. and uh, turned it into somewhat of a business and just kind of kept running. So you were in your early 20s, mid 20s then roughly? Uh, 20. You were 20? Yep. yep. Oh, wow. That is, that is young. So you and Jamie decided you were going to get into the world of, of automobiles. Now, was that a passion you'd had while you were, while you were doing theater? Oh, I mean, I've always been super passionate about antique, vintage, anything. And very quickly, even as a young kid, I realized the older it was, the more interesting and more engaged I found myself to be with it. Mm -hmm. So I quickly was understanding without really maybe having the words for it, but the good enough, you know, quantity over quality, all the corruptions of the industrial age and Wall Street and shareholders and VC and all that crap. And I've always been a serial craftsman. So even when I was in New York as an actor, like I'd be taking drawing classes or sculpting classes or I don't know, throughout the years, everything from Japanese joinery, arts and crafts, fumed craftsman style, mortise and tinian woodwork and sculpting and painting and leather work, like transportation suddenly hit me as the perfect extroverted storm of a combination of so many different art forms yeah. in, in, in a highly useful and easily communicable cohesive product. And that added the challenge of all these different inspirations and languages and art forms having to work together cohesively in one finished product, which I kind of love the sort of constraints that, that, that puts those things in. Yeah. They're all there in, in a car, aren't they? Or, or, yeah. boats, or, or my favorite blimps. Yeah. <laughs> blimps are cool, man. They really are. I don't know. I'm a, I'm, I've got a weird blimp fetish. I just announced it to everybody, but it's true. It's true. I'm bummed, man. I got an opportunity to go up on the Goodyear blimp. And I couldn't do it. I could have done it is what really pisses me off years later. Like I could have canceled or whatever, moved some shit around to make it happen. Right. And it never happened again. And I so lament that. Your blimp fascination reminds me of, I've been listening to an audio book um, about uh, Howard Hughes, who I've, I've read tons of books about. And just, I find for some reason, well, I guess, duh, obvious reasons, but like creative industrialists, pioneer maverick weirdos I find so interesting and I, I think life's too short for fiction because there's always something to be learned and hopefully applied in reading more factual historical autobiography biographies or whatever but right. you know he tried to get a hold of one of the zeppelins to use in a oh. media stunt which he at that point in his career at that time he owned RCA and you know a bunch of different holdings he learned how to use the mystique of Playboy Hughes to his betterment in his industries. And he was trying to use a Zeppelin to like fly over New York City or something to launch some disruptive film with a bunch of scantily clad ladies that uh, the regulators were trying to keep from ever even seeing the light of day. 
But the FAA shut wrong. it down. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> great idea. We're going to use that for Super Nice Club, uh, the big New York launch. Can just need it. You can hook me up with a Zeppelin, right? No, but my friend's the uh, artist and resident at the uh, Empire State Building, so maybe we could manage something there. Fantastic. Uh, so I, I want to go back, though. You were in South Africa with Jamie. You guys were like, you know what? We're, we're done. Forget it. We're going to start selling Toyota Land Cruisers? Is that kind of what it was? <laughs> you had a collection of Land Cruisers amassed already, right? Yeah. Okay. And um, I've, I've, I've never had a proper education. I was hardly ever even in, like, from, geez, from, like, third grade to senior year. I was in school maybe a couple weeks a year. So a lot of it was just tutors on set or whatever. But I've always been, like, a major reader and listener and sponge. And uh, I was taking a extension class at USC Business School. And I got into a debate with the professor and another student about supply and demand. And my theory was, this was like right when that new thing called the internet was starting to come around. I'm like, supply and demand's kind of old school because we now have the tools. So therefore, if we can control supply, we have the tools to create demand. So they said I was wrong. I said I was right. We ping-ponged, and it turned into a, like, I think it was like a $1,000 bet. Oh, wow. And I had to drive a trackable market up, I think it was 30 points in three quarters. To me, I had spare time and a little bit of cash, so that was, like, good enough excuse to go on some fun road trips. So me and my old chocolate lab, Walter, occasionally, or my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, we'd go on trips Pacific Northwest, Southwest, and I already loved vintage Land Cruisers from my travel experiences. I learned so much about the Land Cruisers in environments where, like, your vehicle literally is the difference between you living when the sun goes down or dying. Mm, right. And I saw in the U.S., like, people are like, oh, that Toyota Jeep thingy. Like, people didn't really get it. So to try and win that bet, I was like, all right, I'm going to buy every FJ40 Land Cruiser worth a darn. I'm going to dial them in, and I'm going to resell them, and I'm going to win me that $1,000 bet. <laughs> so by the end of the experience, I was overwhelmed with how many people were like, oh, yeah, I love those. Oh, my gosh, where'd you find I haven't seen a good one in, you know, since I was in Australia or Malaysia or whatever. I went back to collect on the bet and they're like what that was a joke and then we went to south africa we pulled several vehicles out of pits in an old land cruiser and it was just kind of knocking me across my thick skull at that point so when my wife and i made that uh, unplanned decision to reinvent ourselves it was like the immediate logical next step and i was like that's it that's what i'm gonna do and i had a friend who had been bitching to me right before my trip that he wanted to get out of his lease and move his company to Santa Monica. He was a classic car dealer, so he had this space. He was tied into a lease that was super cheap, but not right for him. But he had all the permits and the zoning and everything was perfect. So when I got back, I called him up and said, hey, Grant, you still want to get out of there? He's like, oh, please, I want to get out of here. And I'm like, okay. So my dumbass took over his lease, 
mm-hmm. took the cruisers that were irritating my neighbors, parked all up and down my Canyon Street in Sherman Oaks. Oh, were that guy? I was that guy. I still am. <laughs> but at least now I own a couple of houses on the block and fill those garages, so it's not as obvious. Right. And um, yeah, so just put a post a note on the door. If interested, call. I carry my little tan Motorola brick around, and it just it, like it just organically was well received and kept growing. And that was TLC, correct? Land Cruisers, yeah. right? Yeah. And Jamie was a partner in that. Yeah, yeah, still is, and she's yeah. a partner in Icon. And in fact, I blamed it on you and snuck out of work early and came home, and she's still at work. Well, good. We'll talk about her um, behind her back now, but in front of her back if she listens to this, because I want to get into that a little bit. You and your wife went all in, took a big risk when you decided to reset, and you're making it happen. And it's it's such a hard thing to do. It's such a hard thing to have a business relationship as well as a romantic relationship for a lot of people. Do you have any any tips, any, any reasons why you guys think that worked? I think we we have very different brain types. She's super creative and we share a creative spirit, but she's more of a a planner. In fact, I could say I've trained it out of her a little bit, but kind of a worst case scenario, doomsday forecast trajectory thinker. And I think early on, we organically had enough respect for each other's natural way of seeing things and that had already been working well in our relationship as it was that i think as long as i stay in my lane it works out well. okay if like she's been you know we're in the middle of a breast cancer fight so she's been out of work a lot in the last year and like you know the show's got to go on so normally i have the fun creative conversation I talk the client into one of my stupid ideas. The client's all in and wants to go. I'll like email my CEO and my wife, like client particulars, budget, timeline, billing info. And I party on, you know, I'm done. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like, not right now. (laughs) Shit. Wait, where, how do I spreadsheets? Oh God, no XLS. I hate. Okay. So like I had to start diving in and billing people and sending wire info. And I, I screwed it all up. I mean, from her perspective, I screwed it all up. From my perspective, did the money come into the account? Yes. <laughs> Party on. We're good. We're funded. We'll meet. I can, hear this, I can hear this argument from here. Yeah. <laughs> Months later. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think that that um, that experience has given her a little bit, seemingly a little more lenience for whatever. As long as it gets done, I'll unscrew it up later. But, but the golden rule is respect each other's perspective. If I don't try and do what she does, she doesn't jump into what I do. We're a phenomenal team, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. All right, so here it is, folks. It's, it's easy. It's stay in love, stay in your lane. Yeah. That's how, you, that's how you stay together in a business relationship. And I don't want to just gloss over what you said also. So, Jamie, if you're listening, going through what you're going through, the whole Super Nice Club sends you some love. Yeah, and I think for anyone who's been through the experience with a loved one or themselves, I think they they might identify one of the greatest frustrations is nothing is ever definitive. It's constantly a new variable is introduced or something sideways happens or one doctor says this and the next 
oncologist says, what? No, I wouldn't do that because of this. No, you should consider that. So the ground is constantly shifting under your feet. And it's so, it's so um, difficult to not be too reactive, too emotional, whilst dealing with the reality that your, your brain is constantly having to set advanced trajectories to, okay, well, if they say next week, they say this, then this is our life plan. If they say that, then we don't do that nuclear option and we do this. But the most beautiful thing to come out of the experience that was never expected, obviously, and I, I, I've seen this unfortunately happen in the, to the other extreme, but it's reinforced and even tightened our 29 year relationship. Oh, but beautiful. also like the respect for the moment. You know, my grandfather used to say, none of us are getting out of here alive. Yeah. And I think it's so true that a lot of the minutia and the BS ranging from someone who sucks your life force energy out of you, but never fills it back to you through to needy, unreasonable clients, you know, I've had a client berate me three years after I sold them a vehicle that they seasonally used that had an integrated battery charger when they had a dead battery. That's like, really? Integrated battery charger, folks. Yeah, integrated battery charger. I got to just plug the damn thing in or, God forbid, read the manual that I wrote and graphically designed that no one ever reads. And and it's like you you really get this epiphany of, wait. I don't need this shit. Like life's too short. So, you know, focusing on the beautiful people, the positivities, the opportunities is really where it's at. And, and I, I really have learned a lot from that fresher perspective. There's a beautiful book by podcast guest, Marnie Alaba, called Dismiss My Nipples. That is a beautiful book. It helps people I mean, you've already been going through it for a while, but for people that are just starting this process maybe and, and, and are really not sure what to say, when to say, what their lane is, how to best support someone going through any type of cancer. I enjoyed Marnie and I enjoyed that show and I gained, I learned a couple key valuable things from her. So Marnie, you if meet you're her. listening. She's a local creative her. and she's, she's great. Yeah, I love no, the like. She's like, great. The things yeah. that people say sometimes, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, my aunt died of that. Like, are you kidding me, people? <laughs> That's not what you want to say. You say, God, there's, there's nothing I can say other than I, I love you and, and positive, like, whatever I can do, I'm here for you. Like, that's even more than you need to say. But, like, don't bring up your dead relatives who, you know, oh, she made it through the first round. It's like the people just don't share then, these stories. Dun, 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 it's like, not cool. Yeah. There's no gain from that. <laughs> There's also no segue from that into Icon, but we're just going to plow right into it, okay? <laughs> we, you know, we probably could have, if we had scripted we could, this, I could have I I I winged one, but we don't For me, it. it's when in doubt, just be boldly awkward. There you go. Party on with that. Yeah. Just it. You are, I'm deciding, you're going to be the first in what is going to be a series over time, not sure how I'll put it together, uh, of podcasts featuring what are, to me, analog heroes. And that means people who kind of build things by hand. It doesn't necessarily mean anti-digital. It just means a reverence for, an appreciation for, and a knowledge of handcrafts. Uh, I'm a vinyl geek. 
uh, I still shoot cameras, I'm really into Polaroids, all that kind of stuff, pinball machines, cars. So let's dive into Icon where you do, I mean, you do just that. You build these incredible vehicles by hand. Can you walk us through that? People who aren't even really into cars, just for example, like what's so different about, let's say, you know, a 1985 FJ that somebody finds and takes in to be restored versus an Icon FJ? Well, probably the, the best way to frame that is I, like many men and women, right, had a certain life experience or memory related to some vehicle or frankly, anything archaic that they just loved and they, and they missed and they wanted that visceral, romantic, tactile experience. So they get to a point in their life where they can't acquire it. They go hunt down the best example they can and they get that thingy and uh, the reality of it sucks compared to what their <laughs> romantic memories of the experience was. So for example, with classic cars, even back as a preteen, when I was restoring them in the garage, even before I had a license, I'd finish it and go for a drive. And I used to do them like super original down to the factory chalk marks and imperfections and stuff. And then sometimes literally after two or three miles of driving, you're like, wow, this sucks. Like, the steering wheel is sort of a vague interaction. It's more of a, a waltz than a concerted control. The brake pedal requires serious preparation and planning. The gas pedal, you got to, you know, it's on and on and on. Just right. technology and evolution in, in product design across so many realms has such that a lot of times the things we remember is so grand, it pale in reality of modern context. So... The idea when I started the Icon brand was that I wanted I, any new car I ever bought, I never had any sort of relationship with. And while payments are still due, I was already over it, you know. And mm -hmm. I always found like everything in my life, vintage is just more, I mean, like here just in my house, sorry viewers, you can't see. Like, do you see anything new other than the laptop I'm using? Hey guys, you know? I'm looking at I'm looking at white walls, lots and lots of guns, some cannons, <laughs> then some Stuff BDSM stuff. Oh, wait, am I um, at Joe yeah. Rogan's house? No. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's like I know old books. The, yeah, the, so you got me a book. So I, world, I love the old Chicago books. World's yeah. Fair books and yep. models and neat stuff from travels and plain airs and add art and just like old craftsmanship. Yeah. Everything, like, everything built by hand here. Yeah, which is yep. just what floats my boat. So I realized that to engage that when it came to transportation, I would have to stop and acknowledge the many corruptions and perversions of modernity. And this was happening in my brain at a time when 3D printing eventually came on the scene, laser scanners, CNCs, so many solutions to computer-aided design and reverse engineering that could create a completely new package or total equation that didn't even exist, like wasn't even possible before. Right. And, you know, transportation is kind of stuck in a rut-ish, or not so much today as it was when I started. Everyone thought I was crazy, in that it was either 
stock concourse. It was a hot rod or a street rod or pro touring. There's like all these categories and they generally were very extreme in one direction or the other. Whereas what I was cooking up, what was keeping me up at night was like, no, 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 no. I, I, I want that vintage vibe and feeling. I want to keep the DNA, the spirit of the original vehicle I intend to reinterpret. But I want disc brakes. I want comfortable right. seats. I want safety. I want reasonable emissions control. I, Brembo brakes rock. I'm not going to miss a carburetor, a three-speed, or drum brakes. So really, Icon is all about revisiting the past in a modern context. And we do that many, many, many different ways in different lines of vehicles and even non-vehicular industrial design products that we're starting to explore. Just trying to like find the perfect mashup of the passion and personality of vintage with the functionality of today. These are just beautiful vehicles, folks. If you're listening, just you're you're on a phone or you're near your computer, so just type in Icon 4x4, 4x4.com. There's galleries there. That's going to blow your mind. Seriously, even if you're not a car person, if you appreciate design at all, these are going to blow your mind. Icon 4x4.com, just so you can kind of follow along as we talk. Now, these are new aluminum bodies, though. You're not taking an old, uh, an old rusted out, vehicle and restoring it with your FJs and with your Broncos, right? Well, well, Everything's newer, stronger, lighter. So the FJs are made by a pontoon boat manufacturer in Canada, uh, and they are 5052H32 unannealed marine rated aluminum. The vast majority of our projects, though, are taking and upcycling vintage vehicles. So especially you get into like my derelict line, which is my personal favorite. Those are crazy. Yeah, and I mean, they're down to the patina. That's honest, as found, wabi-sabi, naturally created finishes that then we'll honor and expand upon in, in how we reinterpret um, the interior and other details. But no, they're, they're upcycled vintage vehicles across the board. So you have your, your FJs, you do the Broncos. Uh, and you have your truck. Uh, what's the truck? The Thrift That's Master. a Chevy, right? Yeah, 47 to 53 Chevy pickup. And yeah. then the derelicts and the reformers are two different approaches of that modern vintage mashup. They're always one and done, so they're completely asinine as a business, but the most mm-hmm. fulfilling and educating for me and my whole team. So the derelicts will find sort of that romantic, barn-fine patina and leave that vibe and then laser scan the vehicle, re-engineer the chassis, all the tactile, the electronics, the powertrain, the brake suspension and everything. And then some people look at that and go, you're out of your mind. Why would I spend all that money to have something that looks like crap? I want it pretty and shiny and perfect. And those are the reformers, which will either restore original visual correctly or more often, I like to kind of play a little revisionist history. So, like, I'll put my sh- feet in the theoretical shoes of Mies van der Rohe or Theron or Raymond Lowy and say, okay, right. what if Lowy had been on this team? Because uh, the newer you get, but arguably through all the eras post-World War II, automotive design more and more was about production and volume and good enough. Whereas 
architecture, home furnishings, audio gear, whatever, so many other industrial segments had more purity, it seems, in their focus. So a lot of times, either designers as founding inspiration for the defined perspective, or all the way through to advanced aerospace for manufacturing or surface coatings or textiles. I mean, you know, we'll, I'll source from marine or rail car or architecture, like nothing is safe. A lot of fun. The, now, I'm a derelict guy. If I had to take, well, no, the FJs are just beautiful. Here's the thing about the FJs, folks. This is what drew me to the, the brand originally. Well, originally, you know, you were a client. Um, but what blew me away, these FJs, because they're not inexpensive vehicles by any means, all right? Um, but they're so understated. And yet they're also eye-popping. You know, you're not going to see one go by and it's not, you're going to turn your head and at the same time, it just has such, uh, I don't know what you would say, like a rugged elegance. I mean, I wrote lots of words for you back then that were much better, but they're just <laughs> absolutely beautiful and somehow sedate. They're these, just these gems of vehicles. Here's a question um, for you, if you remember. Yeah. When Mammoth sat down and kind of briefed you on this weird dude, Jonathan, who had this stupid idea... Like, do you remember your initial reaction to the feasibility of this? Or could you visualize my concept? Or did you guys just think, oh, my God, this this will never work? No, and I'm not just buttering your toast. I didn't, I never even thought that it wasn't working. It looked like it must be working. Cool. Uh, because these were, I, now understand, too, that by the time I came into this, which was probably, I'm going to guess, 2010 or something, or I don't know. Maybe even a little earlier. Yeah, that's um, true. We were pretty late in the game like, by then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, by the time I came into it, the, the FJs were pretty sought after. Yeah. That was a hip car. Yeah. When you got into it, not so much. <laughs> right. But, you know, then I'm like, oh, my God, that FJ looking like that, if I had the money, I would buy that car. The reason why is I don't want a shiny car. Yeah. I'm not attracted. I like cool old cars. But, you know, my first car <laughs> was a true derelict. It was a 1969 Pontiac Le Mans. All right. And that thing, I was always getting um, used tires for it. These super wide 60s, these basically slick. Never and, kept yourself you know, more than 10 feet away from your AAA plus card. No. And, you know, I went to the junkyard. I got the old GTO hood because it had the yeah. scoops in it. And I got the uh, the GTO panel. I never got this. The, the GTO steering wheel was cool. If I remember correctly, it was like clear pla clear glass or something in the center, this inset. Yeah, and it had the cool uh, standalone yeah. uh, tack built into the console that was pretty kick-ass. Yeah. yeah, so I didn't go that far, but I got the the Holly four-barrel or whatever. And, you know, for a first car that I was driving around when I was 13, um, it was a complete derelict of a vehicle. That I mean, I was the guy where the muffler fell off, <laughs> you know, driving through downtown, and it's just loud and, and just yeah, terrible. Terrible, but I love that car. I would not want to have it again. As a, like, if I could go back in time and have my first car again, you know that I, I would not want a derelict version of the '69 Le Mans. But I still have always appreciated just how battered and thrashed that car looked. But it got me around. I was in Cuba a couple of years ago, and we were in like an old Lada Neva, you know, Russian diesel cobbled together cab, like on the Maricon, which is like the main beachfront thoroughfare. And uh, the entire exhaust system fell out of it and we were stranded. So it was like good old days. You know, I was literally underneath this thing with duct tape, chewing gum and a coat hanger, 
MacGyvering it back together. And that ended up happening to me like three times in five weeks in Cuba, patching together vehicles. So it's a, it's a good skill set. Well, you're telling you me that everybody in Cuba isn't, isn't a mechanic? I, there's this sort of myth that they must all be really good at keeping those vehicles. They are, and and arguably better than most North Americans because they can't get anything. Right. So, like, literally, I went there under the guise of, well, that's not fair because we did do a project there. But I went there under, this is before, I guess we're not allowed there any again, right? But this yeah, is before we were fair. allowed for a while, and I had special... Right. Um, access through my children's charity because we were funding a really cool program down there so we had a there were no commercial flights we had a charter a flight from miami down there so i kind of rolled the dice on the level of scrutiny at customs so my backpack was about 100 pounds full of soldering wire fuses light bulbs all the things i had heard that the classic car community was lacking and struggling to make sure to ingratiate myself to get quick, deep access. And it worked quite well, I must say. You were a hero, for sure. I I got to all the secret haunts and collections and workshops. It was super cool. I actually got to take one of Castro's gnarly lime green with green velour interior Russian mid-70s limousines, like down to the lime green corded telephone in it. With his original driver, yeah, out into the countryside yeah. to go find this mythical Aston Martin DB24 that was locked up in this shack. It was pretty wild. I actually did a kind of a fun story I wrote for GQ for a while, and uh, we did a, a fun story about the discovery of that car. It was such a cool experience. Um, so you talked about something that I found interesting. You talked about, uh, in another podcast, an early lesson that you learned, this idea of, in, in team building, of master alliance, mm-hmm. and how you apply that at Icon. I, I, that, that's pretty interesting to me. Do you mind fleshing that out for us? Yeah, so two things. Understanding and literally having to write it down on a numbered list, and you did not hear this on that podcast, but this is part of that convo. Um, defining sort of the core tenements of your brand what you will do, what you'll never do, what basically a list of questions that you need to put every opportunity presented to you up against. And the answer needs to be F no or hell yeah as you go down the list before you determine. And I found that to be critical and I didn't learn that till I was pretty deep in. And then the what you were directly speaking to, there's a very interesting American writer named Napoleon Hill, who did like oh, yeah. like self-help business books. Um, I wouldn't say any of them were like things you'd never heard of. Um, horrible title, but there was a book called Think and Grow Rich, yep. which I'm still thinking but haven't grown rich yet, um, that really laid out and like cemented what I instinctively felt about teamwork. And that's where I learned that were really the concept of master alliance formed and I found it to be so valuable because especially with creatives if we have to use the opposing side of our brain we have to like knock away the cobwebs prime the generator kick start it wait for it to warm up and then god forbid you have to shift gears back to your creative side like I really have brain damage when it comes to that I have a very hard time (laughs) switching gears between the two 
and past a point like you know early on i had like five cars 20 grand and a couple credit cards so i had to do jamie and i had to do everything ourselves and that only gets you so far before either you're going to burn your own bridge if you don't delegate and step out of your own way um uh, or you're going to burn out so i slowly kind of played it forward and, and incurred some debt and took some risk to really work on building a team. And oftentimes we don't see eye to eye and that's kind of the beauty of it because one team member is there because of his or her unique way of seeing an opportunity or a challenge or another member of the team. It's the fact that if you respect each other's perspective singularly, it elevates the final result of what you can create. You're going to elevate what you can create as a collective. Yeah. And that's been working for you really well. Yeah, killer. Absolutely killer. Yeah. I think you, the you only ever argue thing, about which cars? No, I think the biggest argument is my team trying to put a leash on me to focus on the most fiscally responsible projects versus I somewhat irresponsibly am more passion driven in that I want to do the one that's going to involve the most new experience and knowledge gaining and I'll be at risk. Whereas past a point, that's just stupid and you got to be responsible. I mean, I don't have shareholders. I'm not a public company, but I have to keep the lights on. I'm responsible for the 50 plus families that work directly for me and the untold families that we support through our vendors and sublets. So I, I still personally need to be reined in and, and uh, struggle. And stick to your stick to your F nose, huh? Is that what I'm hearing? You got to stick to your F nose? Yes. Is that hard stick sometimes? Stick to respecting when they say F no right. or me trying to go back. And in fact, I'm in the middle of trying to gel a, a, a sort of epiphany I've had reasonably of acknowledging I have a bird on each shoulder. One's the creative, wants to try it, explore it, experiment with it, create it birdie. The other birdie seems to be developing richer plumage as I hit 50 this year, where now I'm starting to realize, okay, this has been fun and dandy and all, and I live a good living and for the most part, do what we need to or want to do. I got two kids in college, but I don't have like a nest egg. I have to be fiscally responsible in every decision I make. So I, I need to start listening to that capitalist bird without pissing off the passion bird <laughs> and finding mm -hmm. yeah. you know, ways to yeah. balance. And I'm actually at the point of like, there's a new venture I want to do that I almost feel like the only way to responsibly do that is to find the right person, part of that back to the old master alliance theme, right? that shares that vision that I can pay to join into it and give them a piece of it as a collective company with potential and try and segment myself to product design, development, creative communications and just give up and trust the team member to manage the rest of it. Otherwise I fear there's really no responsible way to do it when I have such a needy 
business already that has untapped opportunities that's like balls out currently. Right. So I, I, How good are you, do you think, at trust when it comes to your team? Has that been something you've had to learn over the years or have you always been good? Like, you know what? I have the right team. I can trust them. I don't need to worry about it. When I go on vacation, I don't worry. That's a good question. I think there's two sides of that that my brain wants to answer, which may not directly relate to what you were hoping I would say or the direct answer. One would be no <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of a old school Southern family open the door, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, learn how to shake a hand as a little kid, the importance of eye contact, and my word is everything to me. I am appalled how rare that is the case in my modern business experience, especially large corporate partners just feel that they have zero accountability because they can blame it on the beast and not stand behind their word. And I, I find that extremely frustrating. I think I'm quite childish in the respect that I go into almost any relationship with a natural trust that everyone else is just like me, no matter how many times I'm proven wrong or let down. Um, but I kind of refuse to let go of, and hopefully and am incapable of letting go of that way of seeing the world. You know, yes. you know what I mean? Like he, That's so you're going to have to get it's jaded really and put guards up in certain respects. But I think the second I give up on that, I just become a prick. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then no, I agree. I and mean, it's really hard when you get screwed over. And your trust gets abused again and again and again. Yeah. The natural inclination for most of us is to grow thicker skin. The danger there, in my opinion, purely my opinion, is that it's hard to compartmentalize that. Like if you're going to get thicker skin in business, it's probably also going to be a thicker heart at home and with your family. Yeah, I, totally. You know, it's really no, hard to wall that can't. stuff off. I don't off. think you you're, can. You either trust or you don't. That's why I think you know? if you're a, an unhappy, soulless human because of your job, I don't care what you think, that's bleeding into your home life. And if your home life is a miserable situation and you're not forcing a transition to change it, improve it, abandon it, start over, whatever you need to do to get yourself right, that's impeding your work. And people talk about, oh, no, I clearly do. Bull donkey. Not going to happen. It's impossible for us as humans. So I think I'm really good at trusting the key members of my team but I have very few that I will trust with mission-critical stuff. But I trust them to the extent of once we define and agree on a directive or a trajectory, I can kind of be done. You know, I'm, I'm stoked that the company's to the point and technology's to the point that, like, I can go on fairly irresponsible three-month trips as long as I'm time zone cognizant and have good access to the web, I can continue to do CAD sketches, communications, rendering, product development, sales, like wherever you are on a boat in the middle of nowhere and then go get drunk and play cards all day. And like, email back to the shop and have a team that can 
collect the money, process the order, get the balls in motion. And I love that, except I think there's a fine line where your core team members feel abandoned, and, and I want to be careful to manage that. To get it, I think probably if, if I had to single it out to not an issue of trust, but if you had said, what's my single struggle with delegation or a team, I move super quick. And I get frustrated with the reality that the kind of projects I do just don't move quick. And I find it quite frustrating. For example, I'll be on a call. Yeah, no, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? And well, what do you think about this? It's totally not needed. But it would be really bitching if we could elevate this idea by adding this. Oh, yeah, yeah, and the client's into it. And I sketch it out. I do the South Park crude rendering, send them an animation so like they can digest it if they can't follow my random words that I'm trying to <laughs> describe a physical thing, which is often the case with the customer base, you know, not being able to really see it unless I show it, um, right. which really even at the inception of the brand, this brand would have been impossible if I had not save my pennies and built what I saw in my mind and made it a tactile experience and then said, this is icon. So I think I get frustrated with some of my projects can take up to seven or eight years. Uh, a routine project will take a year. And I'll go boom, 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 right decide, decide. And then my team doesn't move as quick as I do. I, I, I get frustrated, but that's really on... <laughs> my uh, disformities <laughs> it's not it's not a reflection of them um, it's just the way my brain works I guess what do you think moving to the side just a little bit you're making these beautiful vehicles that are a combination of you know uh, just old cars that you find and absolutely absolutely modern uh, systems that you're putting in, inside them. What, what's your take? I, did, I mean, I just got to ask you because you're here. What's your take on sort of the the promise of the future with you know robot cars and nobody taking the wheel and, and fewer fatalities? You know, but the trade-off being this loss of control, taking the hands off the wheel. Can you see uh, a future in the U.S. where where all cars are self-driving? You know, where insurance pushes into that reality and then kind of what you're creating is just sort of um, a plaything for people's private pasture. It, it's a soulless utility. Um, yeah. I, I think that it's not only a loss of control, but of freedom. Um, it's a loss of creative expression, which in my odd sort of from my unique perspective, uh, based on what I do for a living, I think the, vast, vast majority of new products offered by big car companies, it's their own damn fault because they're so committee driven and watered down and design is taken not just the backseat, it's in the caboose when it comes to being a driving factor of a product um, that they've created this opportunity. Just like Uber, the dysfunctionality of and the arrogance of the taxi cab industry created the opportunity for Uber. So they can bitch and moan about it all they want now, but hey, buddy, you all created this opportunity by being asleep at the wheel and lazy. So I used to be very worried about the future in a selfish sense of my brand and industry segment in light of this. I've actually 
come completely around and done a massive 180 on that because I actually see that the little guys like us are going to blossom in that world because more and more people are going to yearn for that connection, that emotional, tactile, man-machine relationship. The less it's available in modern things, the more people are going to see it as something special and allow it to be elevated and to be seen as the art form that it is and has been kind of taken for granted um, for the most part. I also think it's a really scary factor that look how incompetent all of us are today, I argue, versus even just 15 years ago. When you had to research something, you get your lazy ass out to the library or you dig out your black book. You'd find right. the smartest friend or the friend who's connected, who knows the dude, who knows the girl who's the best at that thing. And you'd go seek out that information. Well, today, like if my phone, if I drop my phone in the ocean and I got to call my son, I don't know his damn number. It, it, it's, it's automated on my phone. So we've become so stupid and we've lost so subtly so many skill sets. As more and more metadata is collected about our parameters, you could argue those algorithms and those data banks potentially are going to have a more intimate knowledge of you than yourself when it comes to your preferences and capabilities. That argument's have, already been made. Yeah. Yeah, no, that argument's already so, been made, and it's, it's, it's a fact. That be, it's a fact if that, that comes into Google knows you better than you do. Yeah. Transportation, or it's just another step towards the dinosaurs stepping on their dicks opportunity for us to just be that much less competent in yet another way. I have friends and um, at from the ever imploding Faraday to the very, mm. very dynamic and interesting canoe, uh, which is up in Mountain View, uh, up in the Bay Area. And uh, yeah, and the, the Google team and um, a lot of different companies that have been working on progressive, autonomous, AI, whatever, all these self-driving, whatever-ness cars. Um, I think there's going to be huge legal hurdles that are being sort of dumbed down and oversimplified currently that are going to create massive delays. I think you're going to see a lot of uh, mm, political, old world, good old boy business relationships where they don't want to negate the relationship with an existing supplier of a traditional infrastructure component, um, nor do they want the risk of no longer buying from that company to try disruptive technology or content that's going to slow it down and politicize it. And I think last but not least, the elephant in the room that no one is talking about. And I've asked several CEOs of multinational car companies is, hey, mm -hmm. <laughs> like two scotches in casual environment. <laughs> Listen, I was curious, you know, with rideshare and even you guys corporately doing 
flexible leases, you know, like Cadillac and Audi, a bunch of companies where you just pay a monthly fee, we'll drop off whatever the hell you want and yada, yada, yada. Like there's a, a loss of a personal relationship between the consumer and the vehicle. You have ride share, you have urban development infrastructure where more and more spaces towards housing less and less per vehicle. There's the, to me, obvious trajectory of there's going to be less vehicles per humans than the traditional business models have assumed. When you have these publicly traded multinational transportation firms standing up at the shareholder meeting every year, they're all beating that same tired old broken drum that's duct taped together saying, oh yeah, we're killing it. And there's an emerging market over here and an emerging market over there. And we're going to, you know, we did X number of units last year. This year we're going to do X times Y. And every year it's complete bogus. They have to play the numbers game, manipulate the P&L, give away or sell those vehicles off with incentives or at a loss to be able to stand up and repeat that same bogus mantra again. So I've literally put this question to the leadership of these companies. What are you guys going to do when you face the, the de-emotionalized relationship, less demand in the market, your huge corporate structures that have made you not so nimble on your feet, and your hesitance to risk your brand equity by trying new tech. How are you going to justify to your shareholders? No one wants to answer that question. Oh, we have consulting groups that are looking at it. Bogus. So I think companies like Canoe, companies like maybe Apple, or a lot of, I mean, there's so many Lordstown, and I mean, there's so many guys coming out of the woodwork. Lucid. Right? The only guys that are going to succeed, I don't think are going to be the first mouse who's been chewing on that same block of cheese for decades or a century. It's going to be a company unencumbered by traditional bloated infrastructure that is willing to try and gamble and test new models. But it's going to be very, very interesting. But if I had a dollar in any traditional car company's stock, I would, I'd cash it out. I don't have a dollar in the market. But if I did, I'd get the hell out. And it's going to be a wild, wild ride. Well, I don't either. So uh, what, what, I think Ford is at like $6 anyway. So you know, <laughs> Ford's at 6 bucks. But and, then like uh, Tesla's valuation Tesla's is can, asinine yeah. to the completely opposite side of it. It's you know? crazy. It's crazy. But say what you will about Elon. You know, he's maverick. He's scary. He's dangerous. He's whatever. Yeah, but he proved it can happen. He yeah. he's shown the model is viable, you know. Absolutely. I mean, even for yeah, me, not going anywhere. like you know, we've built one, two, three electric vehicles. One that's very progressive and technologically pioneering, at least for our space. I mean, I ain't challenging Tesla to nothing, but like, I'm super worried about it myself because everything I'm doing right now, I avoid like the unnecessary modern conveniences that to me automatically create an obsolescence date. I'm all about like celebrating classic industrial arts and, and like continuing the permeance. The fact that I can take a vehicle from the 1930s and there's anything to work with to keep it on the road, 
I love the idea of doing that in a way that allows for it to extend into the indefinite future. Once I start building electric cars, it's almost like building iPhones in that they're going to be obsolete and they're going to be obsolete quick. So I'm having a personal struggle that results in me literally probably talking most buyers who come to me for an EV out of it because I'm worried about the value retention and the technological relevance because that industry is moving so fast. It's literally like two quarters equals five years in traditional automotive tech growth evolution scales. And you're taking somebody's vintage car, they're on a waiting list to get it converted, and they get their car back however many months or years later, and by then, you're like, yeah, this is good for a couple of years, and then you might need to start it all and over And that's again. what I'll forewarn them. Like, if you're down with that, or if you're cool with this representing a moment in time, like your favorite record player or tube amp, right. cool. However, if you want to stay up with the Jones, you're going to be hemorrhaging money with me and sending it back every five years or whatever. I mean, we've seen technology go through three like significant operating system stuff in the EV space, go through three massive design evolutions before I could even finish the car and get it out my door. That's, That's great. nuts. That's crazy. So I try and... All right, I'm rethinking my, I'm rethinking my Volvo, my 1800 ES that I'm looking for. Uh, getting electrified. I love my ES. They're so cool. Oh, yeah, you have I've one. I've got a 73 wagon. <sighs> I was looking, I love them. Yeah, at a at a 73, I did not, on Bring a Trailer, I did not, it didn't meet the reserve. Yeah, that green one, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that green one. That, and this is a crazy car. I know you're going to laugh, but it's because my mom had a bunch of them. One day, if it ever happens, if I sell enough Super Nice Club hats, everybody, um, superniceclub.com, kidding, like a 75... Toyota Celica, but converting that body uh, into a convertible, it would be a beautiful thing for me. Not the hatchback. That's interesting. Uh, and not the Supra, like the 75 yeah, yeah, Celica, yeah. No, I the, the uh, GTS. I think I can envision yeah. that. In fact, it kind of is, it looks almost like a miniature Camaro, like 68 yeah. Camaro. Well, like you're actually, you're, rounded you're factually you know? historically correct. That was a reference for that vehicle. Was it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, bingo. There and we go. Uh, yeah. I actually, I find myself staring at the P1800 coupe, especially the Cowhorn earliest um, Jensen-bodied examples. Now picture that as a Barchetta, as a convertible. The lines of that car is a convertible. In fact, yeah. I rendered it, or Eric yeah. Black, who's way better at it than me, so does most of my renderings, on my reform or my concepts section of my website, we rendered the Volvo with a removable hardtop. You yeah, did? It's pretty How did I miss section. that? It's there yeah, now? It's either in Reformers. Oh, I can't look at it now because we're talking uh, about podcast, my but page. But uh, yeah, that'll be a fun one. Um, let's get this out there before we get to our our, uh, our final three questions. You are currently, you have donated a car uh, for an Omaze fundraising for your charity, right? Can you talk about that a little bit and where, where we can go get more information? Yeah, I'd love to uh, spread the word on that. Thanks for bringing it up. So... Uh, I'm on the board of a children's charity. My wife and I both are. My friend Scott founded it. It's called GoCampaign.org. We basically identify local heroes and communities in the U.S. and all over the world. We have projects in almost 40 countries active today. Many, many now um, pivoted to COVID-specific issues. Um, 
where we find a local hero in a local community who's part of that community who's identified a solution that improves the opportunity and lives of children in the community. And it's already working. Now they may come to us bankrupt, they may come to us with no business intellect, but it's working in, in, in its improvement in the next generation, therefore making the world a better and nicer place. So then we will bring them together and connect them with our global local heroes network and we bring them grants, so financial and intellectual capital to run a more efficient program make it financially self-sustainable. And we, 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 man, we've had local heroes go on to become CNN heroes. We've had Nobel Peace Prize winners, like super, super incredible wow. stories. Like my pet project is a children's center called the Gabriella Center in Moshu, uh, in Moshi, in Tanzania, where unfortunately in Tanzania, despite all the Western religions and stuff throughout the years, no matter what someone's religious lean is or isn't, there's still this gnarly social stigma that if your child has a disability, it's almost unilaterally viewed as a, as a penalty for a past transgression of the parent. So you did something wrong or bad, so that's your problem. So the parents will hide the kids. I mean, some of the stories are just not good happy stories but like kids that literally haven't been outside of a hut for 18 years because the family is ashamed of them and they hide oh, them that's so or kids tied to trees hoping wildlife will just end the problems so they have to deal with it but all the way through to governments especially through the african continent who have no existing structure to support handicapped or disabled youth and, and girls even perfectly healthy intelligent young girls in many countries the second they menstruate, can't even go to school, and they're nope. sent home. Yep. So we do a lot of programs to make an impact on that. And an unfortunate reality of COVID is we had to cancel my super fun annual um, charity auction and party we do called Cars and Casino, where I get friends, all sorts of creators to come up with one-off incredible stuff from like Mark Newson through to Nike to niche woodworkers and surfboard makers and like super cool. I take a lot of pride in that. Some really cool stuff. Watch geeks, all sorts of stuff. But we had to cancel both that event and our annual charity gala, which means we lost about 90% of our funding at a time when the needs are greater than ever. So I teamed up with Omaze, which is a really cool platform. And we created, uh, I designed and built an Icon six passenger FJ44, and people can enter to win without making a donation because that's legally required, but I think that'd be really uncool. And uh, you can donate. <laughs> Every donation goes to support my charity, and you stand a chance of winning this 200 plus thousand dollar vehicle, plus we pay for tax and license, transportation, and we hide $20,000 cash in the gun-rated stainless steel locking center console so you can't lose oh, that's fantastic but it's not hidden you just said where it was well but where's it well, you parked? don't know the you don't know the combination where's it parked oh that's true that's and true. Uh, you got a crowbar yeah so more information <laughs> on the charity can be found simply at gocampaign.org uh, or simply go campaign on Instagram. We do a lot of storytelling. And then to enter into this and make donations related to the vehicle, go to omaze.com slash Jonathan. 
nice and simple. Oh, that is very nice and simple. Um, great. That's very up. Super nice club dolly. We should talk with with your friend Scott. Yeah, on this you'd show. love him and him his story. Here. Scott, if you're listening to this, reach out. Let's 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 get. I'll you make on the it podcast. happen. I'll bully him into um, it. Bully him into it. Okay. So and then, budget collector car out there right now. The next way for people that don't have a lot of money to spend. What's going to be a cool collector car moving forward that people haven't gotten into? A year ago, I would have said a BMW 2002. A roundy is the best example, which references the round tail lights. That'd be 73 and older. Yep. Unfortunately, that ship has left the dock. It's, it's still in the harbor. It's not in the open sea. So they're rapidly rising, but still obtainable for reasonable money. The one that still is not on anyone's radar is our mutually beloved 1800 and 1800ES. The, those Volvos are... Oh, That's wait, not the one okay. I want you to talk about. Never mind, those suck. How about a Volvo Bertone? Those are so groovy. Like I tried to convince. Those are so nifty. I know. I tried to convince uh, my lady comrade that those were cool. And she's like, hmm, not seeing it. I'm like, really? You're not seeing it? Look at the lines. I think they're super nifty. No, it's not. It's so cool. Um, The two-tone, that thing. International Harvesters, specifically the Scouts. Um, they're starting to be on the rise. I can't wholly endorse them because I've owned them and sourcing parts for them is a downright shit show. Um, but if you're a martyr for that kind of research, then those are nifty and still uh, gettable at a bargain. I think Americana pickup trucks of really... Oh, those have gotten so expensive. Well, but only certain people. ones, yeah, right? Like crazy. the C10s yeah. have gone nuts. But like yep. a Cheyenne? Long bed or a long horn, not necessarily. Yeah. Same with the Ford. That's a cool truck. You just got to stay in that window of like modern enough to not involve full martyrdom to actually drive um, versus not so new that it's all plastic crap that's falling apart from the 80s. So there's a fine line. There's a short window, perhaps, <laughs> for that. Right. All right, so those are your cars. Anybody looking to get in uh, budget collectors? And if you see an 1800 ES out there that you don't want, holler at me at the Super Nice Club. That is going to be the Super Nice Club car. And it can it's definitely, I'm looking, it can be a... Perfectly uh, appropriate because it's its one of those cars be, that gets smiles and thumbs up. That's does, one of the things, too, that, you know, to reference something you said earlier. Sorry, I know I'm ping-ponging, but you did it to me. And we did it to them. Yeah. And if they're still fair. listening, it's their fair game at this point, right? We're, we were talking martyrs, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the um, yeah, the idea behind Icon was also that socially, the stigma attached to some bling bling look at me car that yes may state your individualism or your wealth or whatever it is that you want to communicate. The, the baggage socially attached to that these days is just more and more negative. So classics and the idea of icon of breathing more functionality into classics is really an interesting equation and was kind of a core DNA of my brand that I'm stoked to see really have taken root, not just to allow me to turn this into a proper business, but to create a, a kind of a, there's like a global subculture that's grown over the years is the idea that this is more individualistic, it's more under the radar, it's more ingratiating at one with its environment. And like when people see a derelict, they're not seeing like a guy in a half million dollar car or 
it's not about that. It's it's thumbs up, it's smiles, right. it's stories, it's memories, and it's such a beautiful thing to see that transition. I agree. Let me ask you, do you have a, a challenge? We have a Super Nice Club challenge that we issue with each episode. It's basically something that, that the guest says, issues to the membership and says, hey, here's something you can do maybe once or every day to make your world and the world a little nicer place. Yes. You got anything I for them? I do. What do we got? So it's funny when uh, listening to your podcasts over time, I find myself with a knee-jerk reaction of what I would say. And then when you asked me to be on this show, a deeper dive into there's, there's something more clever and I gave it a lot of thought and nothing was as good as the initial knee jerk, which I find is often the case. That's here. Great. The history of man, our, our relationship of our mind and our hands and our ability to, 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 to create is so important intrinsically to us, right? As creatures, as a species. Mm -hmm. And it makes us happier people when we connect with that. So to one person, that might mean an unnecessarily time-sucking, elaborate dinner that your family eats in five minutes. That pisses my wife off. Or it's gardening. Or I don't really care. Whatever it is, reconnect with that spirit within you. And I think the most beautiful way to do that is identify a friend who's in a space of need be that mental hardship, financial hardship, or something as topical as a birthday coming up. Don't go buy them something, make them something. Even if it's your first try in that medium and it really sucks and it fails, it's gonna mean so much to them and it'll become an heirloom and something they cherish and think of their love for you every time. And it's gonna make you a happier soul. Like my favorite emails is, is I've had more visibility as, as a designer over the years is when people reach out and tell me that like I played a role no matter how small and them connecting in that may and, and, and creating something like some that literally have quit their soul sucking cubicle, well-paying job and dived into their nights and weekends garage hobby and made a viable life out of it through to people that Fantastic. couldn't leave the job, it's just started creating and the difference it's made. I can't, I can't implore you listeners enough to just hear me out and give it a try and create something that you respect or have been curious about. It, it'll enrich everyone around you. Perfect, all right, so create something. Create something meaningful, something that helps you something that can be wonderful to someone else in your life uh if you let me know let the super nice club know that you did i'll send you a little present Ooh, right? and then just message right us whatever you. You, you don't have to send a picture no 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 you do todd you gotta okay. encourage pictures so you can i'm trusting them to too me, trusting right? i want to see and I'll, I'll share it with jonathan and uh i'll send you a little something back in the mail old-fashioned i actually the super nice club you know we hand we actually hand address and hand stamp our gifts, I have stamps, everybody. I'm sure you're interested that uh, when my father passed 20 years ago, he left me thousands and thousands of stamps. So when you order something from the Super Nice Club that goes out in an envelope, like stickers or patches or beer koozies, you get stamps from the 70s and 80s and 90s and just it's the most random oh, stuff. Cool. So you can look forward to that. And do you have a question for me, Jonathan? I do. That's how we I end do, I things. do, I do. Okay, what do you Money have? doesn't matter. You're content, mm -hmm. whatever lifestyle you feel is necessary for you and your family. Mm -hmm. You wake up the next morning. What would, you, what would you fill your life with, both for your family and for yourself? 
what is your idea of a fulfilling life? Like, what would, how would you f- reframe everything? Oh, I don't know that I would reframe it a whole lot differently from where I'm at oh, right now. Oh, that's a beautiful um, statement, man. That's powerful. I mean, I would in that I, I think that's, well, because you asked two things, for myself and for my family, right? And that's not always entirely Okay, so wait, let's what I mean by that let's is, until the kids are off at yeah, college and self-sustaining. Yeah. Then what would you do? Okay. Yeah, I, um, oh, Justice will be off to college and self-sustaining next year. Hey, buddy. Um, I really get fulfillment by just learning and exploring. And, and I love the fact that I'll never know the great big mystery of why. You know, I love the fact that I'll never know 99.99% of anything. But knowing uh, a little bit about everything, I love books. I love reading um, I love talking with people who are passionate about things that I know nothing about, which is a lot of this podcast, right? Like when somebody's super passionate about, let's say uh, I'm holding up a piece of foam insulation here, guys, because I'm in my little podcast booth. If they're super passionate about designing the best acoustic tile in the world, man, I get sucked into that. And I'm like, God, I had a great day. I talked to this, this woman about acoustic tile. And it was, I, did you know, blah, blah, blah. I bore everybody yeah. around me, right? Like, like yeah. closed um, cell phone has a completely different acoustic value than an open yeah, cell yeah. dense so, file. Ultimately, I'm pretty simple because that never cost me anything. What does cost me money is the sort of snobby collector in me that wants to get like the first edition hardcover of an amazing book. Yeah, that I have read, that problem. You know, that wants to go and get like these, these items that embody the ideas right? In the real world. Eh, I know that's dumb, but I still like it because I think to myself, and then my kids will see it someday and, and they'll get interested in that. They, they're not. They, they have their own lives, totally different interests. And that's cool, you know, but yeah, so that's, that's it for me. It's just, if I can continue to be learning stuff and be involved in things that are fun, ridiculous, big, prone to fail. Uh, those are the things that keep me learning. Long shots. All the time. Yeah, it, well, yeah, long shot, but you know, it doesn't matter. It, what it is for me is like when I'm in a, a for me, it's, I, I'm all in on the project that I'm in on, right? So right now it's a couple film scripts and the Super Nice Club. And I'm all in on those, but what keeps me happy isn't necessarily that. What keeps me happy is the next carrot over the horizon. When I get anxious and nervous, it's when the next carrot isn't there. And then I lose focus on the one that I'm on right now. Yeah. You know, because I want to be, and I'm not talking about financial security because my life has been wildly every version of financial security and insecurity you can imagine. Um, it's, it's just the, my brain is going to be fired up when this project is done. I don't want to ever be in the feeling when like, when this is done, now what? Yeah. I'm kind of feeling right? a little landlocked. Yeah. I get a little antsy when I can't travel. Yeah. And that's starting to really, that, yeah. that's like chipping away at me. That just sucks. Because I think if, if money didn't matter to me, I would be exploring fading crafts, uh, skill sets, yeah. traditional arts. Like, and I already have a, like just Japan alone, I have like five years worth of deep internships that I've already begged for and been granted a few from textile to indigo to woodworking oh, really? yeah. that like I've spent, you know, a weekend in a studio and stuff like that, that 
I'd love to do deep dives in different cultures and different crafts and then trying to figure out ways from a business marketing perspective to make sure they're sustained and embraced into the future for future generations. Like, I think that would be super cool mission to dive into. Oh, I agree. That would be. Um, my friend Kara was going around actually doing a documentary film series that, that she was getting, doing just that, going around to these lost um, artisans. You know, this guy in France that makes uh, drum cymbals by hand, for example. Yeah, metal, metal spinning is wild. And, yeah. yeah, all this kind of stuff. And then she was just doing different stuff and then ended up not being able to get a... a, a something some sort of travel visa or something and the whole thing oh. fell apart but that project when she was working on it was great I, for a while and she's a very talented i DP. tried to like reposition discovery channel and all these places that constantly hit me up to do like an automotive builder show and i'm like no way in hell yeah because like the i i've like yeah. rotten tomato google me and you'll see why i'm not enchanted by that concept but i'd like try and reframe it into like let's do a show called handmade or you know analog and like let's do these deep dives and expose people and educate people to the value of craftsmanship and invariably they wanted to dumb it down and whore it out to the um jonathan thank you so much for talking with us there were other things we didn't cover guys jonathan also designs watches beautiful 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 are they even watches or do we call them time pieces call it whatever you want as long as you night. appreciate it i'm flexible yeah. Beautiful watches. Um, you can check them out also on Icon 4x4. There's lots of stuff you're involved in that we didn't talk about. Um, maybe we will again someday. Really great talking with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for doing what you do and really being passionate about this process of, of building things by hand and, and perpetuating that and getting people interested in it. It's, it is, that right there is a part, I'm going to say that's 1.4% of the 10% nicer world is just getting us back to making beautiful things by hand that last a long time, that are multi-generational. And you know what, folks, they cost more and they're supposed to because they're going to last 10 times longer and, and only be twice as expensive. Yep, here, here. Yeah, not to get on a final a closing uh, statement rant, but that's something I can get really worked up on. And I know you can too, <laughs> so we'll save it. We'll, we'll save it, man, we'll save it. Jonathan Ward, thank, thank you. Thank you, be well, guys. So there you have it, a super nice conversation with super nice Jonathan Ward. Uh, just before you forget, check out omaze.com slash Jonathan for a chance to win a beautiful vehicle and to help support and fund a very worthy campaign. Remember, Jonathan is, is very involved with gocampaign.org. So check out gocampaign.org as well. There are links in this podcast to those things if you're not ready to write them down right now. Also to more detail on that Cuba Aston Martin story that he was talking about. He wrote an article that he mentioned, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoyed this. I really do. I certainly did. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out there and, and at least looking at some of these beautiful vehicles up close one of these days. Um, what else? What else do we have to cover? I think, yeah, I already told you at the top of the show to check out superniceclub.com and buy some money-back guaranteed swag. Uh, I haven't really been good at doing that. I haven't really good at, at, at promoting the Super Nice Club itself in these podcasts. So I'm going to kind of go over the top and maybe over-promote because it's just really rewarding when you're wearing a Super Nice Club hat to have somebody come up to you and say, what's that all about? I love your hat. 
being nicer? I'm in. And then you say, yeah, I'm, I'm try here's what I'm trying to do to be nicer. And then they'll usually offer something up like, oh, I love that. I did this today. And it's just a great way to talk to people, make new friends. And if you want to really be a super nice club insider, and we're going to do a really cool event pretty soon, and only the insiders will hear about it, uh, text 310-421-0393. Text ICON to 310-421-0393. Love y'all. Stay nice. Just wanna be nice, and maybe that's the